0: This is Democracy
1: Now!
0: There's no safe area. Where shall we go? Stop the war. It is enough. We are drained. Everyone is drained. Children are gone and adults are gone. Everyone is gone and the world is watching. The death toll in Gaza continues to climb. As Israel attacks shelters for the displaced and aid distribution sites, we'll go to Rafah for the latest. Then we look at the decimation of Gaza's economy. Israel's agreed to send millions in withheld tax revenues earmarked for Gaza to Norway to be held in escrow instead of to the Palestinian Authority. We'll go to Ramallah to speak with the Palestinian economist Raja Khalidi. And the New York Police Department has launched an investigation after Columbia University students were attacked with a chemical spray during a pro-Palestine demonstration last week, with eight of them seeking medical attention.
2: It felt like for a while, like, the university, like, didn't believe us. Like, I told them, um... I told them about it, and it's like my concerns weren't really being taken seriously. And it wasn't until students started posting photos of themselves being hospitalized and tagging the university, being like, at Columbia, like, we are, like,
0: they started taking it seriously. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Al Jazeera is reporting at least 20 Palestinians died earlier today in Gaza City when an Israeli tank fired shells at people lining up for humanitarian supplies. Another 150 were injured. This comes a day after at least 12 Palestinians were killed when Israeli tanks shelled a U.N. shelter in Khan Yunis, where hundreds of Palestinians had sought refuge. At least 75 people were injured in the attack, which resulted in a major fire. Israel denies carrying out the attack. The U.N. said the shelter was struck by shells from a tank and only Israel has tanks in Gaza. Israel's assault on Khan Yunis has left the city facing a growing humanitarian crisis. Authorities at the besieged Nasser Hospital say supplies of food and and painkillers have run out. Israel also continues to attack the southern city of Rafah, where hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians have fled seeking safety.
1: We are displaced and they bombed us. My son is a martyr. We are told to go to Rafah because it is safe. I have 50 families staying over. They bombed and destroyed us. Where do we go? Where is the safe place so we can go to? My nationality is Egyptian, but I can't enter or leave. I don't even have a tent to stay at. They bombed us and my son is a young martyr. Where do we go? The old and helpless people, what can they do? Where do we go?
0: On on Wednesday, British Foreign Secretary David Cameron met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Cameron told Sky News he pushed Netanyahu to to accept a pause in the fighting. It's time for an immediate pause in the fighting, because we've got to not only get the aid in, but crucially, we've got to get those hostages out. And what I think we can do now is plan for how you turn that pause into a permanent, sustainable ceasefire without a return to fighting. This all comes as the death toll in Gaza has topped 25,700, including over 11,000 children. The International Court of Justice has announced it will deliver an interim ruling on Friday in South Africa's genocide case against Israel. South Africa has asked the court to impose a number of emergency measures, including ordering a halt to Israel's assault on Gaza. This comes as a new poll in the United States shows more than a third of Americans now believe Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. In Tel Aviv, thousands of Israelis shut down a major highway Wednesday, demanding their government reach an immediate deal to return the over 130 hostages still held in Gaza. The protest was led by a number of women's groups and the families of Israeli hostages. Meanwhile, hundreds of Israeli protesters have gathered at the Ketem Shalom crossing for a second day in an attempt to block a convoy of humanitarian aid trucks from entering Gaza. The protesters are demanding no aid for Gaza until all of the hostages are released. The BBC has revealed new details about how the United Arab Emirates hired U.S. mercenaries to carry out over 100 assassinations in Yemen beginning in 2015. Targets included politicians, imams, and members of civil society. Two of the mercenaries who worked for Spear Operations Group spoke to the BBC and admitted taking part in the assassination program.
1: If we felt like, yeah, okay, he's he's a legitimate target, we're good to go.
3: Who gave you the targets?
1: We received the target intelligence from the UA government.
3: How did you receive them? In intelligence packets. Cards? Cards. How many cards did you receive? Uh, Ten to start. And one of them was Ansaf Maya. Yes.
0: U.S.-Africa Command said Tuesday U.S. strikes in Somalia killed three members of al-Shabaab on Sunday. Somalia is the fourth country the U.S. has bombed since the start of the year, in addition to Yemen, Iraq and Syria. In labor news, the United Auto Workers Union has endorsed Joe Biden for president. Biden addressed auto workers during a labor conference in Washington Wednesday. Biden's speech was interrupted when UAW members stood up and called for him to support a ceasefire in Gaza.
2: an automobile tanker, a staircase. No matter what that was, it should right. be built.
0: Biden's UAW endorsement comes even though UAW has publicly called for a ceasefire, while Biden refuses to, leading some members to impose to oppose the endorsement. UAW President Sean Fain also spoke Wednesday and thanked the president for joining striking auto workers on the picket line during the union's recent stand up strike against the big three. Fain used part of a speech to blast Biden's likely challenger, Donald Trump.
4: Donald Trump is a scab.
1: Donald Trump
4: is a billionaire, and that's who he represents.
0: The Ohio Senate voted to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of an anti-trans bill banning gender-affirming medical treatment for youth. The House also voted to override the Republican governor's veto earlier this month. The law, which also bars transgender students from school sports, is set to go into effect in 90 days. The transgender advocacy group TransOhio said it's been in touch with dozens of families who feel under attack and plan to leave Ohio. In Minnesota, prosecutors charged a state trooper with second-degree murder for the fatal shooting of Ricky Cobb II, a black man, during a traffic stop in Minneapolis last year. 33-year-old Cobb was a father of five. Trooper Ryan Londrigan, who's white, shot Cobb after he attempted to flee in his car while being questioned during a traffic stop. Mary Moriarty, Hennepin County's top prosecutor, vowed to hold police accountable after being elected in 2022 as the city was still reeling from the 2020 police murder of George. George. George Floyd. A federal judge has sentenced a January 6th insurrectionist and Proud Boys member to six years in prison. During a sentencing hearing, Mark Brew of Washington state told the judge, quote, you could give me 100 years and I would still do it all over again. During the insurrection, Brew harassed U.S. Capitol officers, prevented them from moving forward using a barricade and took selfies inside the government building. Prosecutors say that after January 6th, tried to organize another violent insurrection in Portland, Oregon. Over 1,200 people have so far been charged with crimes related to the Capitol insurrection. In Alabama, prison officials are scheduled to execute Kenneth Smith today using nitrogen gas asphyxiation for the first time ever. On Wednesday, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected Smith's plea to halt the execution. His lawyers argued, attempting to execute him for a second time after he survived a botched lethal injection in 2022, constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Another appeal remains pending before a circuit court o- over using the untested method of execution via nitrogen gas. The case has gained international attention. A high profile Italian nonprofit linked to the Vatican spoke out against Smith's planned execution this week. This is Mario Marazzitti, Italian journalist, politician, and death penalty abolition advocate.
5: Kenneth Smith's execution risk to be a milestone execution if it happens. Because it sets a new standard. It lowers humanity at the level of the of a state that has a frenzy and uh, a killing fury against one individual. So it is uh, uh, the litmus uh, test for the level of civilization today if we are losing the battle of a culture of life and a culture of death becomes just normal as it is normal in times of war.
0: In Texas, state authorities continue to bar federal border patrol agents from accessing its border with Mexico, defying a Supreme Court order issued this week. Texas troopers are still erecting razor wire along the border, which has cut off most of Shelby Park near Eagle Pass, a city park on the banks of the Rio Grande. On Wednesday, a Texas official says a 35-year-old man from Nicaragua drowned in the Rio Grande. Two others were rescued. Last week, a mother and her two young children died in the area while attempting to cross the river. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Donald Trump's reportedly pressuring Republican senators to reject a bipartisan border bill because he's concerned passage of the legislation could help Joe Biden's re-election chances in November. In Argentina, labor unions led tens of thousands of protesters in a general strike against President Javier Millet's so-called shock therapy economic policies. Since taking office last month, Millet has ordered massive spending cuts, shut down half the government's ministries, devalued the peso by more than 50 percent against the dollar, ordered the deregulation of business and the privatization of state-run industries, and cracked down on the right to protest. This is Guillermo Picagnini of the Workers' Socialist Movement Party.
5: ¿Qué
2: What are we demanding for the fall of the decree of necessity, an urgency that seeks to give public power to President Malay? What do we want for the omnibus bill to fall? It doesn't only take away our social rights, it also transforms the right to protest into a crime.
0: And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the war and peace report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Gaza, where the death toll continues to climb in Israel's Relentless assault continues. At least 20 Palestinians were killed today and 150 injured as they were lining up for humanitarian aid in Gaza City. This, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, with the number of casualties expected to rise. The attack comes one day after a crowded U.N. shelter housing tens of thousands of displaced Palestinians and Khan Yunus was struck on Wednesday, setting the building on fire. At least 12 people were killed, over 75 wounded, when two tank shells hit the site, according to the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA. The Israeli military, the only actor on the ground that has tanks, denied it carried out the strike. Meanwhile, the Israeli armies surrounded and isolated the two main hospitals in Khan Yunis, Nasser and Al-Amal, stranding hundreds of patients and thousands of displaced people inside—that, again, according to UNRWA. A third hospital was evacuated overnight. In recent days, thousands more Palestinians have rushed to escape further south, crowding into shelters and tent camps near the border with Egypt. Over 1.7 million people have been displaced in Gaza, and more than 25,000 have been killed in Israel's assault over the past three months. We go now to Rafah, where we're joined by Akram al-Satari. A journalist who's been covering developments on the ground. He's joining us from just outside the Yusuf Al nadja Hospital in Rafah, the southernmost city in Gaza. Akram, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you describe what's happening in Rafah and the reports of what's happening in Khan Yunus?
1: Well, uh, the situation in Khan Yunis is aggravating in such a, a very serious way. The bombardment and the targeting around the hospitals that you have just mentioned, Al-Amal Hospital in Khanyounis uh, Khan Al-Amal neighborhood. Al-Khair Hospital that was stormed by the Israeli occupation forces and people there who are staff were interrogated and people who were internally displaced people were arrested. Nasser Hospital has been the subject to some massive attacks and some of those attacks targeted also UNRWA designated shelters that are located in the immediate vicinity of the Nasser Hospital. The uh, clinic, the UNRWA clinic that is in the heart of Khan Yunis refugee camp was the area of its vicinity was also targeted. People were asked to leave their homes. And some of the people who were leaving their homes were reporting about a journey of horror, devastation and imminent death that they have been seeing. They have been reporting about them seeing the people who are dead on the ground without anyone daring to reach them or to collect their bodies or to try to extend a helping hand for the people who are screaming for help because of their lethal and bloody uh, injuries. The The KYTC that is run by the UNRWA and that is also recognized by Israel as a designated shelter and protected shelter was targeted once again and now people who are staying in there who are in thousands are asked by the Israeli occupation to move from that area towards Rafah area in the very south. Which means that there is more targeting underway, which means that they would be afraid and the ones who were killed and injured, who were taken to Rafah rather than to Khan Yunis, because of the fact that Israel occupation closed the way between Khan Yunis coastal area and Khan Yunis refugee camp and Khan Yunis downtown. So the situation is aggravating in that way. Hundreds of people are injured. Tens of people are killed, also not far away from Hanunis, in Gaza City, the people who are waiting in Al Kuwait roundabout were targeted they were waiting for the humanitarian assistance because the situation in gaza city and the north is extremely dire people are already suffering from famine very lacking situation when it comes to the food supplies and drinkable water they're waiting there 20 as you said 20 were killed 150 others were injured the new about this report is that among those 150 there is a very large number of people who are sustaining very critical life-threatening injuries and who might be reported as killed, which means the number of victims of this bloody attack is expected to rise significantly in the coming hours. So the situation continues to feature large-scale bombardment in Khan Yunis, displacement of people, destroying of whole blocks and houses, people moving and they end up targeted when they are moving designated shelters that are supposed to be protected now the people in them are asked to be IDPs once again given that the IDPs in that area are coming mainly from the north people who moved from the north to gaza city then moved from the gaza city to gaza central area then moved from gaza central area to khan yunis area and then from khan yunis they moved to the ky2c and they are now asked for the fifth or sixth time to leave the area that they were seeking safety in and to move in a very unsafe bath towards the unknown in southern Gaza, in Rafah, which the targeting is still continuous. Number of people who are killed in Rafah is still increasing, and the Gazans at large are not aware what the future holds of them, with the number of IDPs reaching 1.9 million Gazans in all different areas, including the coastal area in Khan Yunis and the already heavy populated area in Rafah.
0: IDPs, of course, Internally Displaced People. Akram, if you can describe the telecommunications blackout and the effect it has on people trying to communicate with each other, find each other, uh, get to hospitals, reporting of injuries. And also, I don't take for granted that we're able even to speak to you today in Rafah, in Gaza. Um, And if you can talk about how you both report and take care of your own family.
1: Well, if I may speak from a very personal perspective, I personally was under that imminent threat of death in Khan Yunis. I lost communication with my family, with my sister, with my, nie- with my uh, nephews and nieces who lost their father. I lost contact with my son. I was wondering how can I possibly survive under the imminent threat of fire. And when I say an imminent threat of fire and death, I mean that seven people were targeted at the door of our home the host the home that was hosting us and the seven people no one ambulance could reach them we were trying to call 111 which is the ambulance services uh, sorry 101 which is the ambulance services we could not get through to them the communication blackout looks it looks like it was intentional for the sake of cutting all communication and cutting the coverage and trying to keep gaza isolated from the world and keep gaza voiceless at the time that Israeli occupation was developing the grand operation and was targeting the different areas in khan yunis and throughout the gaza strip i lost communication and i was and am still facing significant challenges reporting moving and you never know when you are just driving in a car or just riding a taxi Or just even riding an animal pulled cart You know, don't know whether they are going to target Someone who's walking down the street Someone who's next to you On that animal pulled cart Or maybe they would target you So it's very difficult to understand in Gaza What's coming next It's very difficult to predict Who they are going to target It's very difficult to predict Why they are targeting people But the bottom line and the conclusion That we see with our own eyes That the targeting is thorough The destruction is larger than ever and the suffering of the people because of that ongoing policy is unconceivable unconceivable in the sense that i personally had to move and see the people who are dead and to try to move and while five or six other houses around me were targeted why i could see the artillery fire taking out whole house when I was moving in Khan area and was staying in the area that I was waiting for the situation to be a little bit safer to move but it, it turned out the situation was getting from bad to worse and the targeting was getting heavier I was staying in the area that is called 111 area which is a block that was designated by Israel as a safe area and the across from our area was 112 block but the bombardment was in 111 112 107 48 86 all the blocks were targeted all at once and that ground operation seemed to be indiscriminately sending death and destruction all over the area so with that comes as you have just said the struggle to survive to struggle to stay sane under this ever escalating situation and to look for one minute of peace i was personally thinking just yesterday that we are wanting some one second of rest and peace even if that means we would die even if that means they would take us even if that means they take our life for the sake of just keeping us peaceful so this is how it unfolded in Gaza and this is how it continues to unfold people are dying, people are scared people are displaced and they think they are even uprooted intentionally and there is an eradication attempt that is taking place in Gaza the Israeli occupation has been targeting every single corner in Khan Yunis Khan Yunis refugee camp that is extremely populated and overcrowded was targeted when you target one house in one specific area that means you are likely to affect around 20 to 30 houses because the areas are very narrow And the space that is limited for every house, and we're targeting one place, an explosion in one place, means that this explosion, the implication of that explosion would reach, or the secondary wave of the explosion would reach around 20 to 30 houses. Mm.
0: Did you know the reporters um, that were killed most recently? I mean, the numbers are just astonishing. The Committee to Protect Journalists, uh, Reporters Without Borders are all decrying the number, ranging between 80 and one hundred and twenty, but the latest killing of journalists, for example uh, wa uh, el al Dadu's son Hamza al um did you know mustafa thuraya uh, did you I know that Wael has just gotten out of gaza he 's head of I the Al Jazeera. Um, and he is, uh, now been operated on in, uh, Qatar. Um, at, uh, he's now at Al Jazeera headquarters. His cameraman, Samar Abu Dhaka, who died in the attack. These reporters, were they friends of yours? I think we have uh, just lost Akram. Absolutely amazing that we were able to maintain that length of time in speaking to him in Gaza. He was speaking to us from Rafa. Akram Al- Satari is a Gaza-based journalist joining us from southern Gaza. This is Democracy Now. When we come back, the Palestinian tax revenue, Israel is refusing to release it but has made an agreement with Norway to hold it in escrow. What's happening to Palestinians' money? We'll speak with a leading economist in Ramallah. Stay with us. <laughs>
5: thought A life, ya
0: Al-Shahi by Ahmed Eid. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's assault on Gaza has exacted a devastating toll, with over 25,000 people killed, 63,000 wounded, 1.7 million at least displaced. Among the consequences of the offensive is the decimation of Gaza's economy. Even before the latest Israeli assault on Gaza began over three months ago, Gaza's economy was already crumbling, the result of a 15-year-long siege on the territory enforced by Israel and Egypt. Now, with vast swaths of Gaza destroyed by the Israeli military and severe restrictions on humanitarian aid coming in, more than half a million people are facing catastrophic hunger. That's according to the United Nations. Meanwhile, Israel's withholding millions in taxes collected on behalf of Palestinians earmarked for Gaza. On Sunday, Israel approved a plan to send those tax revenues it's frozen since November— to Norway, to be held in escrow instead of the Palestinian Authority. While the PA was ousted from Gaza in 2007, many of its public sector workers kept their jobs and continue to be paid with transferred tax revenues that are being held by Israel, further exacerbating the crisis in Gaza. For more, we're joined by Raja Khalidi. He's the director general of the Palestine Economic Policy Research Institute, joining us from Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. Raja, thanks so much for being with us. If you can start off by talking about whose money is this and talk about uh, the amount that's supposed to go to Gaza and to the West Bank and how Israel has control over it. Why do they have control over it?
3: uh thanks a lot amy uh and for this chance to talk with you um before plunging into the dirty details of of, of the economic, the economics of this war i just want to just say a word of tribute to the journalists like akram so many of them who've been reporting who've been shocking us every day and and what is more shocking and we're talking about millions of us watching listening around the world here in Rest of Palestine. What is most shocking is that they're able to still do their job so so well and so professionally. So uh, I mean, we'll come back to Gaza, but really, you know, you don't need an economist to tell you what's happened to the to the economy of Gaza. Uh, we just heard a lot; it tells tells so much of a story. The 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 entanglement of Palestinian authorities' uh, public finances with Israel is a, is a goes back to Oslo. <clears throat> Funnily enough, it's come back home to Oslo, uh, in the sense that this was all part of an arrangement made for a five-year period whereby Israel con- was allowed, because of de facto, in, uh, when Oslo agreements were so- signed, to control the uh, collection of Palestinian uh, external trade taxes at its borders, because it, of course, controls all the Palestinian trade, uh, uh, ex- both that trade that comes from Israeli economy as well as uh, from around the world. So um, that set up a mechanism called the clearance mechanism, whereby all of the recorded imports through Israel or from Israel to the PA uh, are uh, calculated and handed over on a monthly basis to the Palestinian Authority. Now, this was a suitable arrangement in the uh, interim period that was supposed to end in 2000, but then it was perpetuated because nothing else took its place uh, since then, but uh, 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 gradually interpreted unilaterally by Israel in its own, uh, uh, according to its own financial security uh, and political interests. So from early on, this uh, mechanism became a one of the weapons, if you wish, uh, of economic warfare and uh, pacification uh, or warfare, so carrot or a stick, that Israel has used in its relationship with Palestinian economy, with Palestine, with the, with, with the Palestinian people. Now, that has entailed over the years, especially in the last five or six years, uh, unilateral reductions that Israel makes. So it makes reductions for electricity uh, consumption that it claims... Has not been paid for water, sewage, etc. treatment, and uh, for other uh, medical referrals to Israeli hospitals, and then, uh, which something the PA came to accept because it had no fiscal leverage against Israel. And then, in the last five years, Israel, of course, has been ducting, deducting, deducting uh, sums equivalent to what the PA pays to the prisoners and martyrs' families. Uh, again uh, uh, at at loud protest by the pa but with little effect uh this is an issue that the that the you know norwegians the ahlc the imf have been seized with for years but nobody has done anything about so you know this recent uh, unilateral decision by an extremist uh, uh settler government to uh, uh, deduct what they claim is the equivalent of what the PA continues to pay salaries to its former, I mean, employees, but who are not actually not mainly working in, in the West Bank. Uh, uh, you know, is something that what what can we expect the PA to do? I mean, it tried to reject it out of principle, but on the other hand, it's collapsing. Its fiscal situation is 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 near disastrous. So exactly what this entails, this escrow account, I mean, if it means that the PA can say, well, at least Israel is not holding the money that it illegally deducted and we reject totally its deduction, hence we'll take the rest. Okay, that's going to allow it to 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 stumble through the next couple of months, perhaps make some new, you know, refinancing debt refinancing deals, uh, etc., with the banking system, and eventually hope that when things come down, da- calm down, uh, uh, Smotrich will allow the Norwegians to release the funds, which again is perhaps somewhat fantastical. Perhaps it's better to say it's better to have the Norwegians holding it, but that's it. I mean, it doesn't really change the, the, the equation, except that it de a certain amount of Palestinian trade revenue. On the other hand, we got to realize that this trade revenue is directly linked to the level of economic activity. And the level of economic activity in the West Bank has been has has collapsed. I mean, not as much, of course, as as Ghazi, which is now a is, is a non-economy, in fact. But in the West Bank, it's been more about about the return of workers from Israel and what they are no longer spending in the in the local economy for four months. The the cut off and, and uh, of of clearance revenues, but most importantly, is the general reduction in economic activity means that we're importing less. So if we're importing less, there's less revenue. So the average monthly revenue is going down regardless of Israeli deductions.
0: So talk about the effects on the ground of not having this money and who exactly uh, in uh, the current government is deciding who gets what. I mean, you talk about um, uh, Shmotrik, uh, there's Ben Gavir, of course, there's Netanyahu. What's happening with um, What's happening in the West Bank? What's happening in Gaza? And where does the U.S. stand on this? And that's a critical question, because the U.S. actually can exert so much control, given, as one Israeli general said, um, that almost all of their weapons are from the United States, that they could not move ahead with what they're doing with Gaza without U.S. support.
3: I mean, it's arguable uh, as to how much control the United States actually has on this government uh, to begin with. But uh, regardless of that, we know that it, if it, it doesn't want, the United States does not want to exercise any ma- serious influence on this file, for example. All it was able to do is to come up with this Norway escrow account deal, which doesn't really do anything because it's not going to be compensated. To it, it says that money can neither be transferred to the P.A. nor used as a loan to the P.A. Now, maybe it's going to mean that the P.A. can borrow, which it should be able to do, because it's supposedly a government, on, you know, internationally to fund as part of its deficit. But that's, again, another stop stopgap measure. So the P.A. is there very there's very few decision makers on this in the Palestinian Authority. There's the president and the prime minister and the minister of finance, minister of finance. And they're going and coming, I presume, with the different interlocutors to try and come up with something that keeps the, the, the Treasury able to pay part of its salaries uh, bill, the salary bill in, uh, in in the West Bank is about four billion dollars uh, for uh, a year, which is about eighty percent of the of the public budget. Uh, so um, you know that has already been cut prior to the war because of other reasons, because of the deductions that we mentioned. Uh, so salaried employees are are receiving less, paying less, less able to repay their debts, which they've taken out in in you know extreme uh, ways or private consumption debts over the last 10, five, six years in the good good times, so to speak. And then you have, so you have all of that uh, reduction in aggregate demand. From the, uh, purchasing power and aggregate demand, and then you have the workers who've returned from Israel—180,000 uh, people, maybe 150,000 of whom are sitting in their villages and and camps, waiting for something to happen, and nothing is happening. I mean, you know, there's there's very few alternative jobs in the in the local market to begin with. Um, they they had become lazy, if you wish, or the work the labor force had become, you know, dependent. Let's say on the this uh, option of working in Israel, which brings in Two to three times local wages. So there's a major uh, transformation going undergoing in the in the in the local economy. We're going to see extreme poverty increasing in in the West Bank, which it was less uh, uh, severe incidents in the past than Gaza, for example. We're going to see uh, growing uh, 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 social deprivation and inability of the PA to have any money to hardly to pay its salaries, much less to provide services to the poor. I mean, education system is continuing, but it's starting to be hobbled, and so. And so forth. So there's a gradual, I don't want to call it a collapse of the Palestinian Authority's ability to deliver its services, but certainly a, a, a retraction and, and entrenchment.
0: Let me ask you about the um, labor situation, because so many thousands of Palestinians um, worked in Israel proper. Israel's looking to address the major labor shortage, um, because they're not allowing Palestinians from the occupied territories to work in Israel. But by recruiting tens of thousands of people from India— At a time when Palestinians have long played a crucial role in Israeli construction and other sectors who are now barred, Israeli authorities say they're hoping to see 10 to 20,000 Indian migrant workers in the coming months, a deal that's being worked out with Narendra Modi, the prime minister of India. What about this?
3: Well, look. I mean, uh, we're ten to twenty thousand. Is not going to really do anything except perhaps get the next uh, uh, agricultural season crop in uh, and build a few buildings that have been waiting to be completed. Palestinians. There were approximately ninety thousand, eighty-five thousand Palestinians of the total hundred and eighty. More than half of them were working in uh, eighty thousand. More than half of them were working in in Israel. Israeli construction. So they, I mean, our labor force is highly dependent on the Israeli construction center, and the Israeli construction center is highly dependent on our, our labor. So uh, replacing a part of that, yeah, stopgap measure. Uh, in agriculture, I, I believe they're trying to do something similar with workers from Africa. But, you know, there's a reason that, that, that unlike Let's say Gulf states and many Arab Gulf states. Uh, uh, the Asian labor force in mass has built the Gulf countries, if, if you wish. Uh, um, Israel does not want to find itself in that situation, and that's because you know the the exploitation of Palestinian labor is easy. They're next door. They go home at night, and they're you know they're not gonna gonna make trouble. On the other hand, the idea of, you know, and Israel is a culturally is, is not very, you know, open and tolerant to uh, p- people of color, uh, even, you know, uh, Jews and, and Palestinians of color. So uh, I, I think that the, the, these these Asian and wherever they might come from, African workers are going to face a lot of uh, issues in the discrimination in what is really a race, an apartheid, if you wish. Labor market. Uh, Palestinian from 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 the West Bank had a certain position uh, prior to the war. Twenty thousand Gazis were Gazawis were allowed in and were working. So there's this sort of hierarchy, and then you have Arabs in Israel who have, who are slightly higher up the occupational la- la- ladder, but etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So where are these Asian workers who are not going to go and go home at night? Where they're gonna, you know, how they're gonna use them, integrate them, except in a short-term wartime like economy, I don't think it's a, it's a viable uh, uh, option. But the other option of Israel, ter- you know, you mentioned Smotrich, uh, he's one of those who are, you know, dead against uh, such a, you know, a return of Palestinian labor to, to, to into Israeli markets. Um, so you know, they can't have their cake and eat it too. Uh, and I would hope that, um, you know, a certain amount, I think. For sure, a certain number will be allowed in gradually, uh, but I fear that it will be in uh, chain gang like uh, circumstances, uh, you know, with high security around them, only a few hours, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and there'll be a lot of room for exploitation by bosses and contractors and people who issue permits and things like that. So, you know, it's I think that's the way that one is going to play out.
0: Uh, finally, we just have a minute, but, uh, Raja Khalidi, you're sitting there in Ramallah. Um, the occupied West Bank, uh, the Israeli military has raided Ramallah, Bethlehem, Janine repeatedly, as well as many other areas. If you could just describe what it's like living there on the ground, not to mention uh, what's happening in Gaza, and if you see um, any kind of um, end of this violence in sight.
3: It's, it's frightening. I mean, I haven't left Ramallah for the last four months except three times, uh, uh, and many people are living in, uh, sheltering in place. Uh, 350,000 Palestinians in Jerusalem have not left Jerusalem for the last four months, uh, whereas they're usually coming and going to, to, to Ramallah and around West Bank all the time. So there is a, a sense of fear of, uh, 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 of lack of mobilization, except at the very local level. There is no national authority that is engaging and confronting the, 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 the either the settler attacks or the expansion of settlements, we're seeing settlements, uh, outposts, and roads popping up every day uh, on the roads between the major Palestinian cities. Uh, Roadblocks have increased from 550 before the war to 700, uh, and, on, and so on and so forth. Uh, I had never, I had never lived in Palestine uh, under such circumstances. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm perhaps have a greater access, etc. But it's it's not easy for anybody. Um, And for people trying to get to work, people trying to get to the hospitals, people – I mean, it's – it's and then there is the violence. You never know when, you know, if you go down the wrong road, some settler gang will stone your car, burn it, whatever. Uh, That's not to mention the Israeli army's campaign – and uh, uh, against you mentioned very correctly, uh, several cities have been devastated. Uh, tens of millions of dollars of infrastructure, basically mini Ghazis in Jenin, Nablus, and Tul And I think that's intentional. It's sending a message, and it's telling us what's in store for us if you know anybody raises their uh, their head. And you know, to be honest, Ghaz uh, uh, is 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 a is a total catastrophe. But we c- it could get worse if if they continue. In the West Bank, so if we get to a ceasefire, I hope it's a comprehensive one, and it's not only uh, hostilities in Gaza because we're at the precipice of, of, of a, of a of warlike situation in the West Bank, and we don't have any any resistance fighters to, in the sense that Gaza has. Let's say, you know, so it's it's really everybody in the West Bank who's going to be uh, uh, drawn into this if things go bad.
0: Raja Khalidi is the director general of the Palestine Economic Policy Research Institute. Next up, the New York Police Department has launched an investigation after Columbia University students were attacked with a chemical spray during a pro Palestine demonstration last week. Stay with us.
4: Come,
5: all of you workers,
4: toil night and by and by to earn your pay who for centuries long past For no more than your bread have bled For your country's encountered of your dead in the
5: factories and mills In the shipyards and mines
4: We've often been told to keep up with the times but our skills are not needed have streamlined the job and we're slain, drool, and stop, watch out Workers'
0: song, Dick Gawkin here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Students at Columbia University here in New York held an emergency protest Wednesday over the school's response to an attack on members of Columbia University apartheid divest at a rally on campus last Friday. Police are now investigating how pro-Palestinian students were sprayed with a hazardous, foul-smelling chemical at Friday's protest, including members of Students for Justice in Palestine, Jewish Voice for Peace, and Jews for Ceasefire. Eight students were reportedly hospitalized or seeking medical attention. attention. Organizers allege the attack was carried out by two students who are former members of the Israeli military, the IDF using a chemical weapon known as skunk that soldiers also deploy on Palestinians. A Palestinian-American student named Leila described the attack she says has left her traumatized in an interview with the um, podcast The Robust Opposition.
2: I remember just smelling this um, smell in the air, and it, is just, it was just atrocious, I was like, oh, my gosh, like it smells like somebody died. Like, what is this smell? And then at first I was like, "Okay, maybe I stepped in some dog poop. Like, maybe maybe I'm just tired. Um, I, I tried to, like, kind of ignore it for a little bit. But then after the protest, when the protest was done, I just noticed how bad I felt. I felt so sick. I felt fatigued. I was nauseous. I had a really bad headache. And I was like, something, something is going on here. I'm not sure what, but something is going on here. And then I was getting texts and calls from my friends and they were like, did you smell that smell? Um, or my friend was like, oh my gosh, I threw up like three times. Like, I don't know what is wrong with me. So when this is used on Palestinians in the West Bank, like for example, um, it's been used, um, on peace- peaceful protesters there. It's been used, um on shopkeepers and merchants. So like if a merchant gets their produce sprayed with skunk, they have to throw it all out just because of how bad it stinks. It felt like for a while like the university like didn't believe us. Like I told them, um, I told them about it and it's like my concerns weren't really being taken seriously. And it wasn't until students started posting photos of themselves being hospitalized and tagging the university being like at Columbia like we are hosp like they started taking it seriously.
0: That's Palestinian-American Columbia University student Layla describing Friday's attack on her, as well as other students who were part of a a protest. Um, No arrests have been made yet, but the school now says it's banned the suspects from campus while law enforcement investigates. For more, we're joined by Mahmoud Mandani, professor of government at Columbia University who specializes in the study of colonialism. His books include Neither Settler Nor Native, The Making and Unmaking of Permanent Minorities. His recent interview with The Nation has headlined The Idea of the nation State is Synonymous with Genocide. And we're joined by Catherine Frankie, a Columbia Law School professor, member of the Center for Palestine Studies Executive Committee on the Board of Palestine Legal, helped write a new op-ed in the campus paper The Columbia Spectator headline, Blind. faculty and staff pledge to take back our university. We welcome you both to democracy now. Professor Frankie, can you explain what happened, the skunking of the students sprayed with this chemical? Do you know, does the university know who these students were, where they came from, and have they been dealt with?
4: Well, good morning, Amy. Um so the students were protesting in the main quad of the university last friday and we've had a series of protests our students are outraged at what's going on in our name and with our tax dollars in gaza um and uh while they were protest protesting i will say peacefully um, last friday as your um recording of leila's uh recounting of what happened um, they all of a sudden smelled this horrible stench. And I've, I've smelled skunk water when I've been in the West Bank um, at protests. It is horrible. Um, and what the students were able to do is examine video from that protest and identify, I think, three um... older students we have a columbia has a program with a graduate relationship with um... older students from other countries including um... israel and it's something that um many of us were concerned about because so many of those israeli students who then come to the columbia campus are coming right out of their military service and they've been known to harass Palestinian and other students on our campus. And it's something the university has not taken seriously in the past. But we've never seen anything like this. And the students were able to identify three of these exchange students basically from Israel who had just come out of military service who were spraying the pro-Palestinian students with this skunk water. And they were disguised in kafia so that they could mix in with the students who were, who were, um, demanding that the university divest from um, uh, from companies that are supporting the occupation and the war, uh, and were, um, were protesting and demanding a ceasefire. Um, so we know who they were. The university waited three or four days to actually even say anything about it. They have not reached out to the students who were sick, as you noted, some of whom are still in the hospital. I spoke to one student last night in the hopes that we could get one of them on your show this morning, and he was so mentally and physically disabled from this attack, that he said, I haven't left my dorm room in a week. So um, our students are in terrible distress about this, both those who were sprayed and those who weren't. There was another protest yesterday, um, and the students were actually quite afraid to come back onto the campus.
0: Is it true that you've seen these students, uh, the former IDF students, on campus? And what is the administration saying about that since the attack?
4: Well, the university says that they have banned the three identified students from the campus. But I was told that one of them was there yesterday. Um, Other students saw him. I don't know that for sure, but several students said they saw one of them. You know, we have a fairly porous campus. To ban them from campus is something that they'd have to volunteer to comply with. Um, uh, except when there is a demonstration when they've started locking the campus down in the last several months with gates and you have to have your ID just get scanned to enter the campus. And then there's a wall of NYPD. When I went to class yesterday, there were hundreds of NYPD officers in uniform lining our campus. So the university's response has not been compassion, support for the students who were attacked. Instead, it's been a militarization of our own campus and a further restraint on our students' ability to protest peacefully, now turning to the excuse of this attack from those who were who support the Israeli government and the violence that's being meted out towards Gazans as a as a kind of pretext
0: to clamp down even
4: further on peaceful protest by our other students.
0: Mahmoud Mamdani, um, you've written about the situation in Gaza. You've spoken about it. There are now over 25,000 Palestinians who've been killed, over eleven thousand of them children. The issue of hunger in Gaza um, uh, is a very serious issue raised by the U.N. and medical groups. You have that situation there. And the solidarity expressed um, uh, with the people in Palestine— on college campuses. Can you talk about what's happening at Columbia and uh, both staff, professors, students' feelings about whether they can express their views without being uh, doxed or attacked?
5: Thank you, Amy. Um, the situation at Columbia has been uh, developing. Um, it's It's monitored by an administration which seemed to have very little idea about what to do. At the same time, it had certain assumptions. The assumption was that the main problem at Colombia is anti-Semitism. And the administration should do everything to keep it in check and then to eradicate it. Um, When incidents like this, the chemical spraying, emerged, the administration's first response was kind of disbelief. Uh, Give us the facts. Um, Overall, it's been a very clumsy handling. Different parts of the administration have different and sometimes conflicting initiatives. At the same time, um, they have a coherence. And the coherence is basically to shut things down and only to have an opening from the top uh, so no 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 question of freedom of expression from from below um that's where we are now meanwhile uh, the community is convinced that the shots are being called by those who give the money
0: so are you organizing as a professor, with other professors, um, with students?
5: I think uh, the number of concerned professors is growing. Uh, we're all convinced that the initiative must remain with the students. Uh, they are in the front line, but also we're convinced that uh, we should offer whatever guidance we can offer. Um, we we meet and discuss. I personally have not been involved in face-to-face meetings much because of health issues, but I have been involved in 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 meetings which are uh, uh, remote remote meetings. Um, and it's it's changing every day, and it's developing.
0: Professor Frankie, last semester, Columbia University, uh, the new president uh, at Columbia. Um, suspended both SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, as well as Jewish Voice for Peace, for holding a so-called unauthorized event, a walkout, and art display in support of a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, so— What are these groups' um, status right now? And also, you yourself have long been involved with issues around Palestine. In fact, Israel deported you. And explain why. This is before October 7th.
4: Well, my circumstances are much less acute than the circumstances of our students right now. Um, You know, I've been part of the Barnard and Columbia community since the late 70s. I went to Barnard as an undergrad. And um, and I've been at Columbia now as a professor for 25 years. Columbia's campus has always been a place where students have engaged the most critical issues of the day. When I was there in the late 70s, it was issues around feminism and pornography and sexual rights. And, and later there were things around the Iraq War and the invitation of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad to the campus. You know, students, faculty have used the campus as a palette for learning about difficult issues. Um, that's what we do at universities for protesting um, or showing up um, for communities that are persecuted around the world. And what we've seen this administration do since October 8th is um, kind of go to war against our students. I have never seen the university disband student groups for peaceful, peaceful protest. We have scores, 30, 40, 50 complaints that the university has filed against students for violations of the disciplinary code or for organizing protests based on their changing of the rules around how to have an event the night before the event so that the students don't even know that they're violating some new new event rule. Um, uh, the, the university said that SJP... And JVP had to be sus- suspended because they engaged in intimidating and threatening and anti-Semitic rhetoric. And then in private meetings with them, they said actually they didn't, but they won't retract that. So that, that, that defamation of our students remains in the public uh, and in the media and in the, the eyes and ears of, of, of our, our alums and of other students, but they won't repudiate it. And so the students feel like they have nothing left that they can do except protest against the university at this point. Um, but, but Professor Mamdani and I and other faculty have been spending an enormous amount of time protecting our students from the university itself. Um, Barnard students are being prosecuted for their uh, p- uh, social media posts and for hanging Palestinian flags outside of their dorm rooms when New York City law specifically protects the hanging of flags outside of a dormitory. So uh, it feels like we're under a kind of siege, too, at Columbia and at Barnard.
0: Professor Mamdani, um, before you were a professor at Columbia, you were a professor and director of the Center for African Studies at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Tomorrow, the decision will come out of the International Court of Justice, an emergency decision on South Africa's case, uh, genocide case against Israel. Your final comments.
5: Well, uh, for those who read the South African application, uh, it must be clear that its, uh, it's strong point was the, was the content, the argument, the substance. Um, the empirical material uh, relied, drew totally from UN sources and from no other source really. Uh, so it was unimpeachable um the the Israeli side, uh, the Israeli lawyers did not say anything, and uh, did not present any defense on whether a genocide is unfolding. What they did defend uh, was that procedurally South Africa uh, sh- should not be the party making an applicant.
0: Well, Mahmoud yeah. Mamdani, we're going to continue this discussion and post it online at democracynow.org. Mahmoud Mamdani, professor of government at Columbia University, and Catherine Frankie, Columbia Law School professor. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.